Hello, you are listening to 103.3 FM, WPRB community-supported independent radio. This is Hot Girl Theory with me, MC, and Sharon. Hello, this is Sharon. It's been like a month because May was a lot. Yeah. (laughs) But we're super excited to announce that like now we're doing shows every week instead of bi-weekly. And the people demanded it. <laughs> people's, yeah, we're just responding to what our fans asked for. And it's going to be still on Mondays from 11 a.m. to p.m. to 1 a.m. And mm-hmm. we'll be posting all these episodes on Spotify as always. And of course. yeah, it's good to be back. Today we bring the illustrious Rashida to yes. <laughs> present with us. Um. We've had some guests in the past, you know, and so if you're a regular listener, I think you know the structure. We'll have a guest. They'll come with their own suggestions about some literature for us to read. And then we do a bit of like a talk back both through the articles and kind of why they chose it. So I would love to introduce Rashida first. Um, Rashida is both a friend and a colleague, <laughs> a Princeton alum as well in English, creative writing, African-American studies. While on campus, Rashida was a Mellon Mays fellow and also my former peer academic advisor, <laughs> a partner in crime. <laughs> um, she was also an editor-in-chief for the Nassau Literary Review and did work for Princeton's English department and even was a former WPRB host at one point. Since graduating and while at school, Rashida's short stories have won numerous awards. She was named one of Epiphany Magazine's breakout eight writers for her short story, The Killer's Den. And later this month, her short story, Still Breath, will be published in issue 160, Black Voices of Tri-Quarterly, which has been called, quote, perhaps the preeminent journal for literary fiction in the United States. And in the fall, she'll be starting as an MFA student at the Iowa Writers Workshop. So thank you for giving us some of your morning, Rashida. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> Always happy to have you. <laughs> so we just wanted to ask you to introduce for us the two texts that um, we read this week and give us a little brief summary of them and why you chose them. Yeah, so um, the first text um, that I think we'll be talking about um, is a long-form essay um, by Toby Hazlitt. Um, It appeared in the magazine um, N Plus One, um, I believe, early May. Um, And the title is Magic Actions, Looking Back on the George Floyd Rebellion. and it's really um, like a fantastic essay, um, truly amazing, like indispensable, like eccentric, evocative, all, all, all of the great things. Um, and it sort of gives like a kind of um, like street level, um, historical, global synthesis of like basically like the past year. Um, or really, I mean, it take. I mean, at its center, it's about um, the murder um, of George Floyd by the police, um, and then the subsequent uprisings and protests um, around the United States. Um, but also um, takes takes its frame to like a kind of global and internationalist lens, 
and also just considers um, so many things that happened in 2020, like the pandemic. It also takes into account um, several like different and like intersecting histories, like black histories. Um, and yeah, it's, um, it's great. Um, and then the other um, text um, I selected, it was just like a few selections from um, Toni Morrison's um, Playing in the Dark, um, Whiteness and the Literary Imagination, which I think was published um, 1993 or early 90s. Um, and it's not, um, I mean, I don't know if I can say it's like, um, not a well-known work I think I'll, yeah I think but I will say it's probably yeah, not 92. that mm-hmm. no oh, 92 okay cool um but um I don't think it's as cited or perhaps as recognized as some of her um other work I mean I think a lot of people know she writes fantastic nonfiction. I mean mm-hmm. um the anthology like um sources of self-regard came out i think 2019 pretty recently which is like a collection of all her nonfiction essays but Mm -hmm. i mean playing in the dark was quite like a groundbreaking monograph about literary studies and like how we study um literature but also um the site and figure of blackness um within like a kind of like white psychic landscape um so yeah, I mean, I chose, I mean, honestly, I chose the Morrison text first because um, I studied English in college. So, I mean, I feel like that was perhaps um, something that we could talk about because um, I don't, I don't know if um, there are other people, um, other guests who um, brought in, um, I guess, like Not literary, literary theory. Works, no. Yeah. So that's also part of why we're definitely very excited to have you because it's a very different perspective. Yeah, um, and actually, um, I chose um, um, the Magic Actions because um, I had read it, and I was I actually thought like this was like like that article would be the only thing we're talking about. But I'm glad we're putting the two texts in conversation because they are in conversation. I mean, um, mm-hmm. Toby Hazlitt does cite several um, black writers, um, novelists, um, like he cites um, James Baldwin, Ralph Ellison, um, poets too, Gwendolyn Brooks. So I mean, it it's, it is interesting to um, put the two in conversation. Uh, but I chose that um, article because um, I just read it. I like I saw it on Twitter and I read it and I was like, "Whoa, this is wait, can we we can't curse, right? Yeah, no, shouldn't do that." Um. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was about to, but I was like, "Wait, no, this is a radio." Oh. <laughs> um, but it's hard not but to get no, excited like, and passionate. <laughs> that no, like, but that was the, like that was the kind of like effective response of the like it was amazing like. like just the style of the essay and how forceful the kind of language he's mobilizing to like really synthesize like there like when I read it it's like I was just like wow like there's like so much that I forgot that happened that like I that I remember like I remember seeing but I hadn't really processed like what that meant so Mm. it's like so I mean the essay is amazing because I feel like it's those those different events like that were happening yeah and linking them yeah um I was just like it's such a profound historical account of like what what happened a really yeah, yeah historical account and argument for like what happened and yeah what... and I think a good way to just put it in one place like there could be history books written on the summer and it's effective, right but right. a good like intro article right right yeah maybe so 
I think we're going to start with the article, actually. Um, Let's do a quick break, a quick music yeah. break. Um, <laughs> and we'll be right back to talk about the first article, which was it's Magic called... Actions. Yes, Magic Actions. Okay, we're back. Hello. <laughs> with Rashida, and this is Hot Girl Theory with a guest star, Rashida Saka, um, to talk about the article Magic Actions looking back at on the George Floyd Rebellion. All right. Yes. Um, so Rashida just gave a, a beautiful summary of what the article is talking about. Um, I'll also give a brief reminder, since we've been listening to music, in, in case you forgot, <laughs> the article is called Magic Actions by Toby Haslett. It was uh, published May of this year, 2020, early May, so a couple months ago. 2021. Month ago. 2021. Sorry. Wow. The trauma. <laughs> the trauma is still with me. 2021. Yes. So it was like a little over, a little under a month ago that this was published. And it um, compares the riots of... 2020 to the riots of the 60s and points to them as like a, a one of the first times in decades since the 60s actually that there's been really a visible movement of like black people agitating and protesting in the United States um, and so it makes some linkages to those protests of years ago as well as points out what are some of the new outcroppings of this movement um, especially the like uh, decarceration movement the prison abolition movement, um, and also some of the ways that in the landscape of 2020, it looks really different than what it did in the 60s, in particular, um, looking at the ways that there are so many greater differentials in class in amongst Black people in the United States at this point, um, and kind of how maybe the the some criticisms for like the Black social elite and the ways that they have failed also like the black community, I suppose, or like the black middle class and black um, working class um, and also some international implications. Um, in particular, there was a quote that I really liked that kind of pulled out some of the international implications um, that Toby writes where he says, for much of the 20th century, revolutionaries argued bitterly over whether the black movement in America could be compared to African struggles for independence. Now that the informal proletariat is the growing class, fastest growing class in the face of the planet, the fights that flank the black Atlantic have never seemed so interlaced. A global wave of outsiders is crashing onto the shores of the states, and as one wise vandal spray painted on a wall in Minneapolis, welcome back to the world. Um, what are maybe for you, Rashida, some of your favorite parts of this article? Um, for me, I would say my favorite parts of the article are, I mean, one, I, I like keep going back to like the language and the syntax. It truly is so forceful. I mean, I think um, the second paragraph when he writes, it's been a year long enough for the events to be flattened and foreshortened, uh, long enough for the authorities to paint their accounts over the true one, um, last month's statements uh, by Nancy at all exposed the hope that a guilty verdict will be enough to end this episode. 
stating the popular fury and killing the memory of the rebellion, period. We shall see. I, like, I was pretty astounded by um, those sentences. But also, I mean, I think, um, and it's really just, like, to speak to, I guess, like, the the forcefulness um, and the kind of, like, power that he's using in his own language. But I think, specifically, I just, like, really appreciate the historical context and... Um, and just grounding everything like that, like none of this exists in a vacuum. I mean, of course, like 2020s, like uprisings were, I mean, they were quite spectacular. I mean, um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, as he said, like the burning of the third precinct. I mean, I was really shook when I saw that images. imagery was very powerful. Um, and I mean, and of course, like the essay, I mean, is rooted in talking about why, why, why it is that the 2020, um, uprisings were so spectacular and why it was so profound um and moving for many people but also why it also like perplexed and confounded but um but it but it's still but still it's like rooted in like that emerged from like black suffering um and also the suffering of many other um minorities people of color so it's so I think just like grounding it in that historical context was really what moved me and also just um yeah, I don't know. I just feel like there were so many, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't necessarily call them like desperate, but just a lot of information. And I think um, handling the tensions and I guess like paradoxes and contradictions of what happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, he mentions like Breonna Taylor mm-hmm. and um, like these contradiction contradictions exist. Um, and the only, and I mean, the most we can do is just like sit with them and think, what does it mean? And of course, um, when he mentions Breonna Taylor, he talks about how, um, she was killed by the police, um, months before, um, Mm -hmm. George Floyd, but that didn't Mm -hmm. garner, um, as much noise until I think after, um, the uprisings really started going, um, and how, um, and he says, like, there are contradictions. And I mean, of course, like, that really is a prompt to think about um, the role of gender. Because, I mean, mm-hmm. most of the... Um, because in many ways, like, Black women who are affected by police violence still remain somewhat illegible. I mean... Yeah. I mean, even, like, Makia Bryant, um, Corn Gaines, like, these kind of, like, quote-unquote, like, unruly figures of... Like, just of, like, Black girlhood and like womanhood like they like it like when something like that happens it's like there's an attempt to justify why that like murder took place that's Um, true and i feel like a lot of times even in public discourse it's very like black men are facing police brutality and for some reason like people i feel like go out of their way to say black men and obviously those people obviously black men are facing police brutality but why why even bother to put it in a smaller box that excludes some people like everyone (laughs) all black people are facing police brutality and some people are living at intersections of those things right right especially black women and sexual violence especially Mm -hmm. black trans women like Mm -hmm. to be like quite specific too um um so yeah and it really i mean for that it really opened up a lot of like intercommunal dialogue um yes i think even also in the middle of the summer not necessarily police uh, an an example of police brutality but also um the murder of toyin um in the middle of the summer like in the middle of the protests Mm -hmm, and for her mm -hmm. especially as an organizer and that was in the hands of somebody else another 
another just like person on the street um right it was another way i think that it was really like wow <laughs> like come on guys <laughs> right and for yeah and for me that like yeah it another thing too like just thinking about like the place of community i mean i feel like mm-hmm. um yes yeah as socialist and like anarchist as the essay is i mean i mean which isn't to say i mean this is like an aside it's kind of just like a thought outside of i mean a little bit outside of the article itself because mm-hmm. i'm not sort of trying to suggest that toby argues this but i mean in some ways like um just like rem- like I feel like Toby's article was a great reminder that, um, like, there do like we really do need to think about community, um, yeah. And when we're mobilizing against the state, like, the, like it it can't just. It I mean, doesn't happen on like one person can't do it. You really do have to work as a community. Yeah, not only like one person can't do it, but that like if there's not the kind of community infrastructure in place, like, it, it's almost, like, rendered, like, not, not to say not meaningful, but that there's not, that the, the, like, there the just needs to be, maybe is not as much as you would really, yeah, yeah or that, like, like, what are we replacing it with is the question, right, right, and for that, like, there needs to be a community for that to happen, um, or that there mm-hmm. needs to be, like, other models of, like, care and community such that we can actually, like, or at least for some people who still remain, like, I guess, like, skeptical about, like, abolition to realize that, like, there are actually, like, other forms, um, other forms of, like, being and, like, relation that are, like, possible. Um, but that, like, but yeah, but I think, like, um, going back to Toyin, like, yeah, it's just, like, a reminder that, like, I mean, yeah, we need to, like, care for one another or, like, be attentive um yeah to those sorts of things especially at such um a heightened and precarious moment um one of the things that i really appreciated about the article was how historical it was when tracing like the history of black radicalism and activism starting all the way in the 60s with the black panthers i've even before that and also Mm -hmm. citing writers and theorists of black radicalism not just the actual movements that happened all the way to like from james Baldwin all the way to mariam kaba who is like the right. a prominent abolitionist for now. And mm-hmm. that actually, and then there's a part in the article where he talks about how he saw a lot of like young Gen Zers, TikTokers, like slamming their skateboards against police officers. And he was like, they don't even, they weren't even like fully conscious when BLM, like the phrase Black Lives Matters became a thing. Like they don't even remember right. that. And it made me think a little bit about the responsibility and the importance of historicizing and documenting what's happening now and remembering and writing a narrative in a way that constructs and um, depicts what is happening in a way that is useful for the future because in the future we will have people who don't remember what happened and now with the media there's so so many narratives about like it being a peaceful protest it being a a antifa violent protest Mm -hmm. and this article kind of brings those two ideas together and says it was it can be all of these things and mm-hmm. I guess my question is like, what, when you're writing a historical document like this, what are the responsibilities that you hold, and how do you, yeah, what are the stakes for the future when you need to document and reflect on what happened when in a time today where like you can go on TikTok and the archive <laughs> is just infinite, Twitter, but also right. it's like every person is an archivist, 
Right. It is infinite right. and it's so many voices. Right. Um yeah, I mean I I myself have never really written a historical document before. But I mean I will say, I mean for my own I mean no like no history is complete and that I mean I mean even as I feel like expansive and capacious as this essay is, I mean I'm sure and I mean because for me like when I read it I was like there are some things that I truly like forgot happened. Like yeah, um, it's true. the militarization in um, Oregon and like what was going on with like the mothers. I like for some reason like I just didn't remember. Like I was just like, oh, that did happen like that. Um, and I also too, I mean, I didn't forget this, but I also appreciated the mention of um, the law students. Um, yes, who, um, they were picked off they- the street. Yeah. No, the other ones, it was like one of them was actually a Princeton alum and another one, um, they both um, were charged. Um, like they were given years, outrageous charges. Right? Yeah, they yes. were in prison. Like there um, was like a Molotov cocktail or something. Yeah. Like yeah. Well, one of them, it's like they picked her, they picked her up because of design on her shirt. Isn't oh, it? Oh, yes. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. But it's just like that. Like so many things happen that how do you... Um, not only just like construct it, but make it something that coheres and is like legible yes. for people who weren't there. Um, yes. And I think, I mean, with all histories, like, the, I mean, you can never give a full account. Um, and also, all history, I mean, there are probably like white conservatives. I mean, I wouldn't know. I don't. I don't know who these people are. I haven't read anything, but like who are who, who have also constructed their own accounts. Um, I mean, because especially too, I I even remember um at the time like when people. I mean, because, I mean, I mean Toby already. Said, sorry, that was just an aside. I, I was just gonna say like Toby already said about um, just how like corporate media has constructed their own narratives of what happened. Even like the um, move from talking about um the uprisings like not like uprisings but just like protests like the the yes. move to like change the kind of language yeah. um, that actually is one of the quotes that i think i have pulled out at a certain point is like yeah in the article he says meanwhile um <laughs> do, do, ah, where is this part- or there's something in it where he's like Oh, yeah. Essentially, it's... just the the sanitization, honestly, even of the language to go from um, uprisings, but rebel. He says, "quote But rebellion and even uprisings soon fell from widespread use as spring mm-hmm. slid into summer. The ter- the preferred term devolved to protests, a change that marked the last phase in this jagged political sequence." Yeah, but I think. Um... Sorry, just like to go back to your question, MC. Um... I do think in terms of the um, project that Toby's doing, I mean, it is important to make it, like, rather accessible. Um, and, and, I, and, it, and I think that this essay is not under a paywall on M plus one. But also, I mean, just generally, like, I feel like his style of writing... Um, so clear and beautiful but also um it's just very transparent um mm. as much that as much even as it um even as you have to like take pause at certain moments or it opens up um thoughts for like or like sites for more like inqu- inquiry or, um and stuff but um 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, like, for me, like, in terms of, like, thinking about crafting um, a historical document, like, it will, like, I mean, even, like, talking about, like, the, like, TikTokers, I mean, that's, that could be, like, a whole other, like, essay, like, that could be um, a whole other thing to, like, discuss and think about and talk about and, like, how, I mean, TikTokers in 2020 were, like, very important and useful like political agents in the yeah. united states um, the dialogue yeah um and ways that like i don't really think i mean of course like there were infographics on instagram but um in ways that i feel like were very different from other social media platforms i mean i don't i mean i don't know too much to say whether like how unique um it is or was but um yeah I don't know if that answered your question, yeah. but I mean, that's like, yeah. Do, do y'all have thoughts on that? I actually was in reading this article and thinking about how it relates to the 60s and that, um, like that aspect of it. Um, I was just thinking about um, this as like an online magazine. I feel like things like the newspaper, magazine, pamphlets, those type of things were all very important in disseminating just ideas also in the 60s mm-hmm. um right. and it's I was just like trying not necessarily as a question but just in my mind I was thinking about like what role do those same forms of communication but in also digital versions like mm-hmm. physical things like zines these days and also like an online magazine like this um and other digital media like TikTok like Twitter like Instagram even because I feel like there was also like this in in the summer of 2020 there was like the aesthetic of like the info Instagram infographic <laughs> which has yeah. now I feel like become a meme but it was like just this like yeah, yeah what would Palestine search- uprising yeah. mean for you and your family <laughs> like that's how you of, can help and yeah exactly and like all the up the building up of that aesthetic also as like a way for people to yeah. learn and engage with um international um ongoings um, yeah, yeah. Just thinking about how those are similar, like there's a lineage in particular, but they're also right, very different right. for the context of the day. Yeah, I would also like to add. It's very interesting that some of the most important um, critical essays um, of like politics in the U.S. and even abroad are not coming from like traditional newspapers, like that are increasingly becoming more centrist and right wing, like. Okay, like I'm shouting out the New York Times, like it's all shade, um, <laughs> yeah. but also like like they're coming like these essays are coming out of like literary journals, like yeah, um, which is interesting to note. Like Toby Hazlitt is a PhD student in English at Yale. Like he, like he yeah. writes literary criticism, um, but also I mean I suppose one could say is also um, a public political writer. I mean, one could say that. Yeah, but, um, yeah, but, um, yeah, so I think that's also something interesting to note, too. At this point, like, when, you know, like, journalism is a think piece, is a poem, is a literary thought, is a historian, like, does it even matter what your job is, or your your formal (laughs) job is, when you're documenting history and what's happening? It's true. Yeah, I don't... Wait, sorry, Sharon. Sorry. I, th- Go I was just gonna say sometimes it's literally just writing down here's what happened today, and that's documenting history. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like 
yeah i don't think it matters i feel like it'd be somewhat classist and elitist to say so i think like the reason why i brought up um toby hazlitt being in english is just i mean one i mean i realized right now like just as i'm speaking it does offer a nice segue to think about toni morrison because she is she is situated in literary yeah. studies but i mean they both are um yeah I but say, i feel like even historically people who have written about the ongoings of like langston hughes it's like you're a poet but you're writing about what are the civil ongoings at the time or they're academics right. who are writing about and like making their own opinion pieces still Right, and it and it truly kind of highlights the way mm-hmm. people uh, like blackness, but also people with marginalized identities, kind of. I mean, not to say need to, but like there is the a strong impetus to do so because it affects their daily lives. Um, I feel like it. But, it actually reminds me of conversations that I felt like MCU and I and some other friends had, maybe at the time that we were coming into college, closer actually to like ferguson protests where it's like what if, if the art that we're not making now is not addressing the things that are going on then like what is the art doing and i feel like those were the conversations right. people were also having in the 60s when there was right. a lot of more in the 20s um, Langston Hughes was dragging them exactly it's like uh, if there's you know major events going on in the world it's like if your art isn't addressing it then not that you, all art has to but like it's right, interesting. right right <laughs> Um, yeah, I think, yeah. Oh, also, sorry, to go back to, um, MC's question. Like, I I say I brought brought back, like, I brought up the fact that, um, Toby does, um, literary criticism just because, um, it just offers a a different way of, like, reading. And also, like, even if you do literary studies, you can engage in history. I mean, I mean, most people nowadays are doing interdisciplinary projects and require, like, different methods and tools to think about literature and politics. Um... So, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, I just mentioned that because, yeah, it just um, offers um, just a different perspective and argumentative tools and, like, forms of analysis, I guess. Um, but, um, yeah, because I actually, I mean, I haven't done much research, so I actually don't know what, um, like, what he actually, like, studies. But um, I imagine it's probably something in the vein of, like, um, what he wrote, like, just, like, black politics, black radicalism, socialism, anarchism, like, yeah, and literature. Um, yeah, what yeah. what I really appreciate about that was that he just, um, like, one, we live in the age of the internet. Like, you can find out things. It's not like you need to have right. a job title to know that this happened or that this is, like, this is what COVID is doing. And in the article, he mm-hmm. was, basically, he was asking, like, why did this happen? and mm-hmm. how did this happen and where is this going he was always right. like oh like why now after the six after so long in the 60s like how did covid mm-hmm. impact it how is it impacting the rest of the world and to be able to do that you need to be able to thread some sort of narrative like you were saying like right, oh, i don't right. know what the narrative that's like the crazy like white supremacist right wingers i don't know conservatives mm-hmm. are threading but you need to have kind of a grasp of what has been going on for the past 60 years not just right. history but like politics economics right. literature theory and to say these are how these all, all these ideas came together and culminated into this protest this is how the financial pressures of covid and historical segregation mm-hmm. in the u.s have come together to form this and in the end you you do have to create like a thread you have to say like this is why it happened and this is what we need to do to fix it which 
it will expose like a very like specific point of view and i feel like we, we're not usually encouraged to do that when we like read the news or see what's happening right right there's not like an argument so to speak it's just like here the things but it's like what yeah it's just like a documentation of like the what but not like the why or even um being a bit um forward facing and thinking about what is like what are the implications for the future yeah i mean yeah and also i mean yeah to, to bring up the point about perspective yeah it's interesting because i i mean i remember i mean there are um yeah because i mean overall i mean toby's essay is very optimistic like just like the future like the future of radicalism is is great like we like i, actually, I mean I, not yeah. to I, I mean, there are t- a couple of things I want to touch on to really like, kind of discuss his optimism. But please finish your point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe great is too, <laughs> is too broad um, and not specific enough, like a word. Um, but um, but I think um, I think the response of like even saying we shall see um, is because there 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 remains a lot of pessimism. Um, about what happened I mean I mean to bring up I mean some I mean some I mean because I think I was reading an essay I I hadn't finished it but I mean there's just some people I feel I feel like I saw some people comment that um, Toby's essay was great insofar as like because people thought like after like I think there were just some people who said stuff like um after after the summer there was like great um like a lot of people were disillusioned by the uprising or like or sort of questioned whether or not it had impact or an effect um and even and sorry I was going to mention this before and then I faltered but um I was going to bring up Frank Wilderson I mean recently um he published an essay I think in The Nation um let me find a title it's sort of like an afro it's sort of like it, it was a riff on, like, Native Sun or something, um, mm-hmm. but it was, like, an Afro-pessimist, like, it's, it was sort of, like, a reflection, like, a really short and brief reflection one year later, because Frank Wilderson is from Minneapolis, um, mm-hmm. but it was about, um, sort of his, like, how he was thinking about, um, the, le- like, the legacy of the George Floyd uprising and rebellion across the United States, and, I mean, that is a more pessimistic point of view, I mean, for those mm-hmm. who, like, are, I mean, it would take a lot. Like, it would take a lot of time to actually explain uh, the core tenets of Afro pessimism. But it's just to yeah. say that, like, they're they're the, re- the listeners to do some research on their own. A little yeah, that's like a own. whole. That's like a whole other episode. Like, it, probably it several episodes be. to yeah. unpack um, core arguments um, and what, what it means. But um, but yeah, but it's just to say that there there was an it and there remains a lot of pessimism. Um, about the movement and I mean and I I mean I won't lie like I also was just like damn like did something flop like oh sorry yeah. I like swore no <laughs> like, oh no that's I fine like that's okay yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah um but I was like yeah like did so like what like what happened like what was new so I so in in that regard too like I was also deeply appreciative of um the essay magic actions because it did I mean it did offer some optimism which I don't think is like wishful thinking but I do think it's grounded and like like riots and rebellions have happened before and they will continue to happen as long as the state keeps terrorizing Mm -hmm. 
like the most vulnerable people and communities and populations. So it's like, um, and that and that remains like that has not changed throughout the years, no matter how militarized the police have been getting. Um, but yeah. yeah. Actually, the, what, there are two things I kind of wanted to bring up, both in the terms of, because I feel like we've t- discussed a lot about how this article weaves things from the past and sets a stage. But like you were saying, the optimism that it has for the future, um, even MC and I, we were discussing like Can this you give article, a quick like, summary it, of just like what, what you mean when, yeah, what he said about the optimistic future? Yeah, so in terms of like, Toby kind of makes it seem like this, what the summer of 2020 is like a a point of inflection from which Mm -hmm. the psyche of like black americans but just generally americans has awakened to the notion of uh or like it's opened people's eyes who didn't know before to like the level of oppression that exists for black people in the united states and that is going to really propel people to actually create change in a systematic way um or like in a systemic way that is similar to what came out of the 60s. Like, I think that's kind of where maybe for me, Rashida, I'm like, that seems a little bit of like a, it's like, yeah. cause like the 60s, I'm like, black studies right. came out of that. Like so many things came out of the 60s. And I'm like, this was a very important summer, the summer of 2020 and these riots, but is it creating the same level of like, uh, visible change in people's psyches? I don't know. And right. also, in particular, Toby uh, makes through lines to international implications of the riots of 2020, pointing out like the NSARS protest in Nigeria and MC and I, you and I, you and I had talked about like the Black Lives Matter movement in Brazil, um, and like how did the riots of Black Americans in the summer of 2020 inspire or model for any sort of protests? or Toby says that there are models for protests internationally. I think maybe Mm -hmm. some people would be a little bit um, skeptical. It's like, because it's kind of like, I mean, how much can the protests, even for an oppressed group, but still in a place like the United States, be a model for um, imperial subjects of that same country? Um, And and similarly, just like, what even are the long-lasting implications, even in this country, because there's been so many articles that I've seen already in the past couple months that have like pointed out how amongst large demographics of the United States, especially white Americans and Republicans, support for Black Lives Matter has actually gone below the amount that uh, for the Black Lives Matter movement has like gone down since 2020. Um, Like there's more, (laughs) essentially people dislike the Black Lives Matter movement in those demographics even more than they did before 2020. And Wait, all which those demographics? Things, like, especially white Americans oh, and okay. conservative Americans. For black okay. people, it's obviously gone up. And, like, for Hispanic <laughs> demographics, it's, like, stayed the same. Okay. <laughs> so for a lot of people, it's, like, it kind of is, like, did it really change anyone's opinion? Because right, no right. no one but the black people who cared about it before seemed to care now. <laughs> right, yeah. still I, care about it, but even more. <laughs> right, and... I mean, yeah, and then to go back, like, this does speak to the, I mean, to, sorry to complete that thought, this does speak to the pessimism, because, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, not only was it just, like, corporate media, but also, um, 
companies that were issuing statements. I mean, because that was also something that like had never, yeah. I feel like had never happened before. So like so many companies, and of course they were doing that because they wanted to safeguard their items and didn't want to get mm-hmm. looted or whatever. Um, yes. But but also, I mean, with that too, there were um, so many people, and I mean, of course, this becomes also another interesting conversation when we're talking about like literature and what, yeah, and just like, mm-hmm. I mean. Yeah, just because um, what what I'm trying to say is that um, there was, like, such a robust, um, like, flurry or, like, deluge of, like, people sending all of these um, book lists or, like, reading lists or, like, anti-racist um, yes. readings to Educational do. Educational material. Yeah, and um, what? Sorry, I'm going to look up the title. Is it who... Who wrote the text White Fragility? Robin D'Angelo. Um, Robin D'Angelo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and how... Yeah, and just like... Yeah, a lot, a lot of people um, having thoughts about the fact that a white woman um, spoke yes. about whiteness and racism is yes. becoming and a bestseller when exactly. there are many other black writers anymore. Yeah, but... Um, yeah, and also, I mean, yeah, and just also the disillusionment about the fact that, like, people were saying like oh we need to do all this reading and um, come to find out most of these books are being left um in libraries or like there or no one's like actually do or no one's actually reading them um mm-hmm. yeah and also i mean and also to go back to what you said about like um the like all of these things that happened me um following the 60s um yeah it's like we did like yeah there was black studies there was like profound movements following but also it, it, it led to really bad policies um that affected that affected so Mm -hmm. yes and i mean and the same thing's happening now under biden's presidency like what has he done like there's literally a twitter twitter account that's like what has by like what has joe biden done since becoming president um or like how has or what are the kind of like material changes that Mm -hmm. have um which promises have actually become uh implemented in any way shape or form yeah, so I think there there's that, um, which, I mean, that, like, I don't know, I mean, I, I feel like if, I mean, I feel like the article is not necessarily, I mean, not to say not necessarily concerned with it, but to say that, like, that doesn't matter, there's really no way to rely upon the state for change, and that, like, what really needs to be the primary focus is how people are, like, organizing on the ground, um, but um so i think like that's kind of the like the optimism of like street level organizing is what i think toby finds is like promising not necessarily like what and like how that will like destroy the state but like so not necessarily like what it i don't know i guess like what it means to just like think solely about the state but what it but like just like like maybe like small scale and how that can turn into large scale like community and like political cultural movements um to the part about like empire and like the mention of NSARS um remains something that I also just have to think with because I mean because I think like a lot of people were also struck by um um how many, like, how many other people from different countries, I mean, you had a lot of people in, like, Europe, um, like, people, um, 
in like South Africa, like just people in like many parts of the world who are also organizing. I mean, even and also like Palestine, um, hashtag free Palestine. Um, but um, just organizing because of the murder of George Floyd. Um, and a lot of people being like, oh, that's like so profound. That's amazing. But like, and it's true. And I mean, and for just like clarity's sake, like I truly arrived at this conclusion because I was talking to a friend about it because I was like, it, 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 is, it is like quite extraordinary to see that level of organizing globally. But it's also the question like the United States is like a global empire. Like, so like, which is to say that like, there's a way in which like, people people elsewhere have to be attentive to u.s politics in a way that people in the u.s are just not about like what is happening around the world um perhaps the only exception to that being um um what's happening in palestine um and ethnic cleansing um that happened which is also interesting to think about because the article came out before that um so it's it's yeah. I, I wonder how the author would like respond um to the organizing and movements for uh, Palestinian freedom and liberation. Um but um yeah, but I mean to say that I mean I do think if anything like I don't know cuz I guess like when I don't think I'm like hesitating, but I'm trying to like gather my thoughts and how to articulate this. But it's just that I do think there that there are things that people in the United States can learn from people who um, are in the global South and how they are fighting oppression. Um, but it's also important to note that the oppression they're fighting is like because of the country we are currently living, like the kind of violence that this country is enacting across the world. Um, and that like... And I don't know, I just feel like because, I don't know, I just think that, like, like, the consequences of, like, what's happening because of U.S. empire, I feel like a lot of people, I mean, not only does it, like, boggle the mind, but I feel like for a lot of people, it's, like, quite obscured, Mm -hmm. um, and in some ways feels a bit abstracted and not... I mean, and MC, you can, like, also, like, just chime in, because I'd be curious, like, what you think about this, too, because, I mean, when's the last time I've left the United States? Um, but, um, but just to, yeah, but just to say that, like, there's a way in which, like, I don't know, it's just, like, the reminder that, like, the, like, people in the global south, like, the oppression they're fighting, like, we, we are implicated by that because we live in empire as much as, we face oppression here, which is why, like, when people talk about, like, um, Black liberation in the U.S., they're like, it has to be internationalist because the goal can't be to just, like, like, I mean, it, one to just join the ranks of your oppressor. Right, and become incorporated in the U.S. national project. Um, mm-hmm. It's like, it's actually, because, like, I mean, not only is that not possible if Black and brown people are being oppressed in the global <laughs> South, but it's just, like, that's not... It's not like it it literally just like does not make sense. Um so sure. yeah. I think in response like there are two things. Um oh my god, my mind just my mind just went blank. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's the thing. One, like you were saying about how like everyone is implicated in the US and like to the extent that you pay taxes that is true, 
But to the extent right, of, like, how right. are we personally responsible for it, especially if you're a working class, like, person. Right, right. Generational wealth. You don't own a factory. You don't own land. Right, right. You are not. Like, you are right. also being held hostage in the U.S. Right, right. And then also, where, like, all of the immigrant, like, community in the U.S., where did we come from? We came from the global south. Like, that's right, right. what we were trying to escape. And there's a tendency in the U.S., I think, to think of like, oh, because, you know, we control the media, we control the cultural narrative, we control the world economy, um, movements and social movements that are coming in the U.S. are going to go and affect change in the rest of the world. When really, mm-hmm. I think it's the opposite. I think mm-hmm. it's um, movements in the global south are brought into the U.S. or right, they right. start crumbling at the base of the empire. Because if we think about a lot of like the decolonial theory and the anti-imperialist um ideas and currents that we have today all of them came from the global south right and so i feel a lot of a lot of historians that i've been listening to or journalists they talk about how actually the black life motor protests the riots all of this are actually they're not causes or like um catalysts for something bigger like um, right, right. we saw in the article, but they're actually symptoms of a failing and a crumbling empire that is being, right. I guess, like imploded from without, from outside. Right, right. Um, yeah. Which actually, I think is more, op- even more optimistic because you're actually yeah. seeing the the periphery reaching towards the core and, and, and dismantling mm. it from outside. Yeah, mm. yeah. That, yeah. Excellent points. Yeah. I guess like, yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know if I misinterpreted the question, T. Um, but, um, yeah. I guess, like, for me, like, yeah, no, like, that, I agree totally, MC, like, those are excellent points. Um, yeah. It's just that I feel like sometimes there's, I don't know, a bit of arrogance on, like, what people in the global south are doing, and it's like, no, we actually need to take heed at, like, what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. It was interesting to see how he, like, he very beautifully wrote about the riots in a very realistic and just, like, it, like, everyone's like, oh, no, they were all peaceful. It's like, yes, there were a lot of peaceful protests, but they were also destroying property, which is what made them so revolutionary and so important. Mm -hmm. Um, And, like, yeah, that's cool, but, like, in Guatemala, they literally stormed Congress and, like, set it on fire. No, literally. (laughs) Like, yeah. No, literally. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who's storming our Congress? What a disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> Embarrassing, honestly. <laughs> yeah. The the Congress storming we have at home. <laughs> <laughs> I'm screaming. Yeah. So, um, we're going to wrap up our discussion on the first um, article and we're going to go on a little break right now stay tuned we're going to come back and talk about Tony Morrison's playing in the dark hi we're back (laughs) this is hot girl theory with MC and Sharon and our beautiful guest today Rashida Saka so, thank you, thank you. Opposite tones of Rashida Saka. <laughs> I guess if you're just joining us now, we could just do a little brief summary. Actually, Rashida, could you do a brief summary for us of the passages that you chose? Who was Toni Morrison and what are these passages about? Yes, uh, so Toni Morrison um, was an incredible writer. Um, she wrote novels, essays. 
Um, she worked as an editor um, and before um, becoming a full-time um, novelist. Um, um, she also um, taught um, at universities as well, um, following the publications of some of her most enduring work. Um, she's probably most famous for, um, I mean, I think all of her novels um, are quite popular, but I mean, I would say like, I mean, most known for um, Beloved, which um, received the Nobel Prize, I think, in 1987, um, and also um, The Bluest Eye and Song of Solomon. Um, she passed away um, 2019 in August. Um, and yeah, should I go into what I selected for? Yes, yeah, and, yeah, and so um, the... So I chose a few selections from her um, monograph, um, Playing in the Dark, Whiteness, and the Literary Imagination, um, which um, I, I feel it's, um, I do think um, it's quite, it's quite, a new, like, it's a known work, but it's not as cited. I mean, I think, like, um, yeah, when a lot of people talk about, um, like, literary studies, it's not... I mean, I think, I mean, perhaps in academic circles, it's mentioned quite a bit, but I think um, in terms of like, I guess, um, public discourse, um, a lot of people don't really know um, some of the work. Um, but um, I selected, um, I believe um, I chose um, like the, the preface, the first chapter titled Black Matters, um, and then um, the third chapter, or part of the third chapter, I believe. It's quite, it's quite a short monograph. It's um, less than 100 pages, um, yeah. so um, definitely worth the read. And you can also, um, I mean, it's quite, I mean, it was published in 1992, 1993, um, so you can actually like just find it on Google um, for free. Um, we'll put it on the show a, notes on our Spotify. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I chose the work primarily because um, I studied English in college, so um, I just thought it would be something interesting to talk about um, because um, I don't think anyone, um, previous guests have brought um, forth, like, literary theory, so I thought it would be interesting to talk about um, literature um and what yeah and just like thinking about like blackness and literature and what and I guess like the greater implications of, of what it means to think about blackness whiteness the other um in in American lit and how that also yes. relates to politics um yes. uh, because we have in the past like in a previous episode where we talked about um Orientalism, I feel like we did a little bit of like pop culture to politics, but never literary theory. So this is great. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah. What would you say is her main thesis or the main like point she's trying to drive home in the mm -hmm. So I would say the main thesis of the work um is that um wait, sorry, I'm gonna pull up a passage because I highlighted it. I mean, to summarize, I, I would say um, it's basically thinking about um, 
how blackness is represented in literature. Um, and honestly, to borrow um, a more, I suppose, contemporary term, because this is um, one of the critical terms used in Sakia Iman Jackson's book, um, Becoming Human, um, which was published um, 2020, um, and it's really great. I mean, she also um, thinks about Toni Morrison's beloved, um, specifically Paul Dean Animality, which is interesting. I would recommend folks check that out. But I mean, she uses the term plasticity to talk about how blackness is morphed um, and made like liquid material um, to be made like anything and nothing at the same time. Um, um, sort of to be made, like to be dehumanized, superhumanized, um, all in the project of sort of like remaining vestibular to humanity. Um, and of course, like the way she's thinking about the human is like as like a politicized subject. Um, but um, um, yeah, but um, yeah, but um, for Toni Morrison, I think she's thinking about the same thing. Um, I mean, she was thinking about the same thing before Zakia Iman Jackson was talking about it um, in a, a slightly different way. But it's to say that, like, thinking about how is blackness mobilized in literature? How is it represented as abject? How is it used to sort of um, reinforce the humanity or like humanness? of um, white people in literature mm -hmm. um, and I think and the passage that I wanted to read from um, mm -hmm. it appears um, um, in the first chapter um, and she basically talks about um, she her so the critical term that Toni Morrison uses in the text is called um, um, Africanism um, which is basically the figure of like blackness and she says um what Africanism became for and how it functioned in the literary imagination is of paramount interest because it may be possible to discover through a, through a close look at literary blackness, in quotes, the nature, even the cause of literary whiteness. What is it for? What parts, it, what parts do the invention and development of whiteness play in the construction of what is loosely described as American? Um, um, so that's... Um, what the project is basically like that's just the project of the book um and I think what I mean there's so many things that are so interesting um and just that that was I think all just two sentences um and I mean it's interesting because we're taking a look at literary whiteness to think about whiteness as like in the material and like political landscape of how um we are to think about an American identity, um, which is fascinating because that, I mean, that recalls a bunch of history about the project of literature in the United States. I mean, and that like would have like, like you have, like there's a lot to unpack there itself. I mean, even thinking about, for example, um, the formation of like the MFA program, which happened, I think, um, I don't know if it was at the. There's also another book that MFA really is great. short for Master in Fine Arts, right? Yeah, yeah, Master of Fine Arts. I'm in there, and this is specifically um, for fiction, um, um, because um, the Iowa Writers Workshop was actually one of the first MFAs in the United States. Um, I think it was constructed during or at the end of the Cold War, but it was basically to. And there's actually. 
let me look up this book there's like a fantastic book that talks about marxism and literature um but also how like the cia conspired to create um are you serious and this yeah mfa movements yeah mfa programs excuse me um because um to sort of like quell um or dismantle um international like internationalist movements for like the proletariat like like and like oh because there definitely have been like i know amongst previously speaking of the 60s again there's kind of like this use of media and culturalization and doing all these i feel like even today like they do all these like cultural events at like you know embassies and other countries will do cultural events and bring artists and musicians and things like that so i don't know Probably it is in a way used to quell. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's because, like, to sort, I mean, not only to, like, kind of construct a kind of an American identity or an Americanness, but also, I don't know, like, going back to. Yeah, and also just, like, reinforcing sort of these notions of, like, the individual, individuality, um, self, like, self motivated, self possessed person that, like, I don't know. It's just interesting to think about because the kind, because the kind of history of like to go back to I like the writers workshop. I mean, it's like not. It's kind of dark. Like it's not good. I mean, and of course there are a bunch of like gender issues mm. because um, some of the professors were like taking advantage of like students. But it was like it's not. I mean, that kind of destructiveness and almost like hedonism like that. I mean, it doesn't exist in a vacuum, and it's like kind of it kind of reinforces the project of what, like, the politics of, like, MFAs and also just, like, literature and, like, what that means. Is it, like... In terms oh, of, yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead, sorry. Oh, no, keep going, sorry. I just, I just wanted to ask, like, is it, like, oh, there's so many, like, independent collectives and artists group and, like, revolutionary, like, just, like, community building in within the arts community, so here is a very structured, hierarchical, classist program that is really hard to get into that is going to be prestigious and supervised by American universities. Here's that for you to quench your, like, artistic ambition. Is that kind of what they wanted to do? Right. I think so. Like, I myself have not done as much reading, so I actually can't um, speak to it, but I think... Um, I think part of it is because, like, a lot of the artists from the 60s and 70s, I think, I mean, that's part of it. And also just, like, like resource hoarding. Like, Mm because one of the things that MFA does is that it connects you with editors so you can get your work published. And that's, like, I mean, I wouldn't say that's, like, the primary channels through which you can get published, but um, it is incredibly hard to get published or get a book published. Um, So that... like that is one of the ways that can happen which is through mfa programs and also just access to professors but sorry just like last point i was just gonna say i think that's also due in part because a lot of the artists uh like a lot of like prominent artists of the 60s and 70s um were socialists um Mm. so put them in iowa they won't be socialists anymore (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, they're even, like, because I was actually listening to a podcast, um, I think it's called Fiction Nonfiction, but um, it was about, um, and uh, what was, I can't remember the author's name, but she wrote, um, she recently published a book, I think this year, called The Gold Digger, yeah, The Gold Diggers, she's an Indian American um, writer, um, 
and she was on a podcast with um, an economist. Um, and that was interesting because they were talking mm-hmm. about how like actually um, these two fields are like very similar and actually the mm-hmm. way economy has sort of gathered its own like legibility. Uh, I mean, not only has um, economics gathered legibility because of being on like being like being a recipient of like the Nobel Prize along with like other natural sciences, which in many ways has like legitimized the field as like objective or is like as an actual science, yeah. which it is not. <laughs> yeah. But um but um but that like uh, like economics has also gathered some of its ethos and like I don't know, there was just an argument put forth that the only reason why economics is what it is is because it has gathered some like its ability to narrate something that is a bit fictitious from literature Using like how you and statistics you right um so yeah just in like i think i just mentioned that just to like sort of make the connections between like literature and sort of like a political and material mm, landscape yeah. and how that actually and also you just like the that, fact that, that podcast along well, well i have yeah. comments, but i'm also personally interested to listen <laughs> Yeah. So, um, in case yeah, you were confused, basically hot girl theory is showing to you how everything in America is a CIA op. <laughs> no, it's true. Like that's that's the T. Like <laughs> no, like that's literally it. <laughs> and then each episode, we're like, I don't, I didn't mean to end up here, but <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I, yeah, I was gonna say, I, I don't know if it's even any longer re- related, but I feel like conversations that we had had actually last summer, MC, about talking about, like, um, branqueamento in, in Brazil, I feel like kind of that work that is done of, like, creating a depiction of the culture and, like, a whitening of, this is what a Brazilian culture is, and, like, whitening it, um, through arts and things like that, and writers, that is also how the U.S., spreads through writers and media and music to other countries to be like this is the u.s citizen it's so nice and ideal and you would love it here (laughs) really good example of that because like i so like the reason like i'm brazilian um we talked about this but i I haven't you can say i have an american accent and the reason why i do is because i went to american school and everything i learned about america because i like my family lived in america for two years when i was a baby so i don't remember anything Everything I knew about America were things that I learned in the internet and my like literature courses and in English literature. I basically took American high school English, and that's where we read *The Great Gatsby*. That's where we read *To Kill a Mockingbird*, and that's where we read, sh- read Shakespeare. And the whole construction of an American identity—what is this country? What is its history? And what is its values? I took from these books. Um, mm-hmm. which I which actually tying back to the reading that we did with playing in the dark is exactly why constructing heroes and narratives like that is so pivotal to the American project as a whole right mm-hmm. right yes storytelling and then um. you know looking back and understanding how it racializes um, African and enslaved people is so important to this project as well yeah mm-hmm yeah, I mean, and that and that is something that Toni Morrison critiques in Playing in the Dark. She critiques, like, the notion of individualism, masculinity, um, and also, like, the... I mean, the argument really is that, like, those, those concepts, like the individual, the masculine subject, this kind of obsession with, um, like, death, hell, redemption, um, sacrifice, like, these emerge 
because of this like dark and looming um like African presence or rather um just blackness itself um and she sort of just I think like the project is really to like unearth what what that means and then and she does like a few close readings um but um yeah I mean I think that I don't know to like place it back with um Toby's essay I mean it it becomes interesting then how I mean just the force at which like or like really just how he cites different black writers and how their own contribution to um to literature um is like hmm, how do I articulate this um I guess like a way to sort of expose the way um not like both exposing the way blackness is figured as abject but also the kind of power and in language and using that mm. to craft one's own identity that's not um yeah. sort of constructed through like white writers and like a white imagination mm. or like what and it, i mean a lot of it is really just like an, a critique of americanness but yeah yeah I don't know if that yeah. made sense, but... No, I think if we have time for maybe one last question, there was a conversation MC and you and I were having yesterday talking about, like, the minimalism and these ideals of English language and, and in the... Um, in the writing by Morrison, just kind of, she points out, like, she, she uses a case study of, like, Hemingway and the way that he writes about this slave but he never gives the slave any dialogue so that they're never really humanized or like made first person maybe um i don't know mc you probably would be able to kind of ask a better question <laughs> or at least explain better what's happening in that portion i would love maybe to talk a little bit about that yeah like how style and um yeah just narrative are also kind of ideological because right she, right in and are a good like uh, window into the psyche of the writer themselves and their own biases. Yeah. Right, right. Because in in the last chapter that we read, I think which was um, she, it's called the kindness of sharks, and she talks about Hemingway's writing. And I, from what I understand of Hemingway, is he's a big writer in constructing just like American masculinity. Um, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. he's a very like people like look at to him example of like talking about like post-war America and just kind of like the or like post-war Americans and just like the noir and the like not the noir what's the word the enwa ennui you know like that <laughs> yeah. like, um, mentality but he's also seen in terms of his style as like an exemplary example like an exemplary American writer in that American literature is not romantic it's very concise it's very objective mm. it's very simple right. it doesn't right. use a lot of like latin words it's the most <laughs> vocabulary rich language in the world so you can convey whatever you want with the least amount of words possible it's terse it's concise so like how does like this minimalist style and i guess this construct i don't know if they're related but this construction of like this american white masculinity and just the erasure but you have to go out of your way to erase black people yeah. um mm -hmm. in yes. your literature because you they have to be intentional because they exist yeah they exist in your in america um yeah. how are these things connected if at all 
it's a hard question, I know. Yeah, um, wait, can you repeat the last question again? I started searching through the PDF. Yeah, um, just how is the, um, advert, like, intentional or even just, like, unintentional racialization of everything and the reliance on a black-white binary, um, and the construction of like an ideal of American literature and like identity, how are those things related? Yeah, um, yeah, I think to start off with talking about spare um, writing, I mean, I think there are always like different um, ways. I mean, I think like every generation sort of employs a particular, I mean, style or like yeah, like, narrative style, um, though, I mean, some decades become most known for, um, one style or another, um, or, like, a defining feature of it, um, but, yeah, I mean, I do think, yeah, I do think, um, the kind of spareness does, I mean, yeah, like, just going back to, like, economy of style and thinking about, I know, like, these are, these are the ways that we can write about being and, um, other, like, being and becoming, but I guess, um, and the kind, and the kinds of people who, like, fall out of that, but, um, but, sorry, I'm, like, really blanking on, like, the questions you asked. Is it, like, in the document? I guess, like, yeah, just... What you were saying, the relationship of style and, like, defining oh, an ideal okay. style oh. to... Okay, I remember project. what... Okay, I remember what I was going to say. Yeah, because... Did you ask a question about, like, the psychic landscape or, like, what that... Because I do think... Um, yeah, I, I think maybe that was mainly me, but, yeah, asking kind of, like, the psyche of the writer and, and the, having to be intentional about erasing the influence and also literal individuals, like and what okay. it means for the psyche of the writer. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, the thing is, like, I mean, I can't necessarily speak to... Like, I just don't know, like, what... I mean, some people might argue differently. But I feel... Um, yeah, in terms of, like, how difficult it is to erase... I mean, because Hemingway was from the South, so of course he'd be around black people I mean one would think but um yeah it's just to say that like I know sometimes I hear this too like now like people saying like oh like how could you have a work of art and not feature a, a black person or any other minority and it I mean it is to say that there are like white enclaves or like sometimes white people just don't interact with um other like black people or other minorities so um it's to say that that is like a C possibility but of course that is different from the project that I think Morrison is stating which is to say that even um an unintentional or intentional absence is still it's still and I mean I guess I suppose even an unintentional accident absence is still intentional um 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it sort of does reveal the kind of abjectness of blackness um, in the space of literature. And also, like, honestly, like, the limits of what it means to narrate about black people and blackness and the other, um, the like, the quote-unquote other. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, sorry, MC, you had, like, a question that, for some reason, I'm, like, blanking on, but I should have done what I did before and write down what you guys are asking so I could like point by point um, <laughs> you're not obligated to take any notes um, yeah no it was just like to jot them down cause like there were a lot but, yeah I don't know was that like a sufficient response like I feel like I didn't really answer the question no the point of the podcast you're not supposed to have a specific response <laughs> we answer it's questions literally just like yeah. I think you did. Yeah, but thought. I feel like I didn't answer, but I, like, didn't respond to, like, what MC asked. No, I think oh. my question was a lot of me thinking a lot, and I think you did answer it when you said, like, like, um, different periods are marked by different styles. It's not necessarily, like, Hemingway's style is the American style, but... Yeah, but it, but it speaks to, like, a political project of mm. Americanness or, like, an American identity. And that his is actually held as... And, like, an example, like, it's considered, mm-hmm. like, that's why, like, Morrison, like, cites him. I mean, of course, like, she's also, she also has, like, a pretty steep um, preoccupation. I, I think she has, like, a very complicated relationship to Hemingway um, insofar as that, like, she, I think she she does like his work. Or maybe mm-hmm. I'm confusing her for Jasmine Ward. Because um, there's, yeah. Oh. But, um, but, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Because from, I don't know, like, I um, I had a very, like, I don't know, my English teachers were all huge fans of Hemingway, so I, like, read that in school. And with Hemingway also, um, I know they're a little bit different, but, like, George Orwell's um, The Politics of the English Yeah, I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking about Orwell, too. Yeah, like, that whole, um, we'll also include the essay in the show notes, but basically the idea of the essay is, like, here's how you uh, employ English to write as objectively and non-biasedly as possible. When we know, in fact, that writing with objectivity is impossible... Um, mm-hmm. or that's what we believe in. So you are just hiding, using language to hide and, and say that this is the absolute truth. And that's kind of what I see in minimalism. Like minimalism is like, it's the terse dude who like only speaks right. when necessary and like. Right. Okay. This is what I, I forgot. That's when, objective and it's like, yeah. no, that's just your way of doing things. Yeah. No. Okay. This is like the piece that I forgot when I was trying to answer. I was like, she said something like that. I was like, yes. But then I was like, wait, I can't remember anymore. Um, but yeah, the um, objectivity, like trying to construct a narrative that is removed, distant. Um, I mean, I don't know if I, I mean, I, Hemingway did write a lot in third person. Um, because, I mean, I think he also was a journalist, if I'm remembering correctly. So that also informs um, how he writes or how he wrote too, in terms of like the kind of like tensions between objective and subjective. And I mean, of course, like journalism itself too, like we know it's like not, like nothing is objective. Um, that's mm-hmm. um, a psychop, like that's not, <laughs> like it's not a thing. Um, but um, yeah, but to say that, um, yeah, but that, but that is like a definite like feature of um, um, a lot of American lit, or like at least like what people strive to do um um in their works that I feel like some people still um like try to advance that argument um or method of thinking about fiction 
sometimes um that like you have to be like a bit distant and removed from um Mm. your characters um Mm. but um and and that goes back to what um morrison writes where she says like you need to study the psyche of the writer like you can't just take what they say right right. and when you try to distance from your characters you're trying to say like i do not matter right right it's a yeah it's like the like art artist divide or like debate um in which people try to say and it's like no like actually um this work was written by someone um, and it's mm-hmm. informed by um their experiences but also like what what goes unsaid or like underwritten or like sort of like remains in the subtext also um exposes like a lot about um i mean like exactly that like their psychic imagination but also how that informs how people move through the world i mean people get very attached to characters um and sometimes forget that it is indeed fiction i mean uh um as compelling as the project of realism is but um but i mean it's also just to say that um these things do inform sort of like cultural attitudes and moods um of a particular moment um And that cannot be divorced from the political or, like, material landscape from which, like, the work emerged. Um, so even if a writer is not attentive to whatever is going... I mean, this is kind of the work of, like, literary criticism. I mean, because some people say, like... I mean, I guess, like... Okay, never mind. But it's just to say that, like, there are certain things that, like, some... Like, a writer is not really attuned to um, when writing a piece of work. Um, and that the, the, the job of the critic... Um, or who or whomever is just writing about the work um it's to sort of unearth what what it means like mm-hmm. in not only historically at the time the work was written but what does it but how does this inform how we are to think about mm-hmm. literature and ourselves like now um and also like the future i suppose no that's very true um if there's anything you still want to say or bring up that we haven't brought up, please interrupt me. But I guess as like a closing question, I wanted to turn the question back to you as a writer. What are the responsibilities towards the writer and toward, towards the readers and towards yourself that you always keep in mind when you are writing and making your own work? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's really, um, I often think about ethics. Um, and the kinds of stories um, that we tell and the kinds that, um, like, just, like, I mean, I just think, like, just the meaning of, like, what does it mean to tell a story in general? Um, And also just, like, style and character. I don't know. I guess, like, for, and, I mean, when I say ethics of telling a story, I'm thinking of a story I've written quite, quite, um, I mean, I mentioned it quite a bit, but I guess I wouldn't go into it. But it's to say that, like, there are certain stories that, like, yeah, you, you don't need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, at a certain point, we would love for you to plug your own mm-hmm. work, so. Oh, well, I'm just thinking about um, the Killer's Den story that um, mm-hmm. I wrote. And it's about, um, I mean, I wrote it when I was quite young. Like, I was only 19 when I wrote and published it. Um, mm-hmm. So it was quite... I mean, it was all very shocking to me, um, to be quite honest with you. I mean, I don't think 
yeah because it was just a prize but um but it's to say i mean the story is about um two nigerian children and sort of grappling with the lost uh family members but mm -hmm. it's just but it's to say i mean sometimes that story gives me pause because um um, I have been to Nigeria and even the town, um, or really, um, yeah, the t like the city in which my um, mom grew up in, it's my mom's hometown, but it had been like a very long time. Um, I was, I think um, I was like six or seven when I went and it was for um, my um, maternal grandfather's funeral. Um, but it's to say, I mean, even thinking about, I mean, at the time I wrote it because it was inspired by um, these articles that I had read when I was um, a first year in college. Um, but um, it's to say that I, I guess I, I guess I didn't really think about not only some of the language I was using, but um, I guess like positionality and like my own relationship to being like um, an immigrant child um, and thinking about what it means to, I mean, and I think this is like a lot, I mean, this is like a question that um, a lot of writers of the diaspora, of whatever diaspora sort of think about when they're um, writing about um, homeland or like heritage country. I mean, that, I, I mean, it wasn't, the story wasn't really meant to romanticize Nigeria in any way. It was kind of dark actually, but, um, but it's just to say that like, at the time I didn't really, I wasn't even aware of like what it means to write ethically or like what it what does it mean to consider ethics in fiction and what does it and what kinds and also just like the use of like metaphor um and what um and really i mean to put it quite plainly like what it means or like what are um the implications of um um just like using certain language i mean i think for me yeah, I mean, and also I think, like, staying true to, like, the kind of political project or aesthetic project that you're interested in. So, like, for me, like, in fiction, I, because I, because the thing about the way one is, like, often taught fiction, it's just that, I mean, it, I mean, of course, it kind of depends on who teaches you or, like, who, um, yeah, you, or, like, what kind, what kinds of, like, ideology, because it's just that, um, there's some, there's some people who, like, believe in, like, who, I mean, and this is really for, like, short stories, but, I mean, I suppose, I mean, novel, I mean, it does, it could apply, um, but, mm -hmm. um, like, for example, in short stories, like, really interested in moments of epiphany, or, like, mm -hmm. um, question of, like, redemption, um, or, um, or just, like, a happy ending, um, and I'm not really invested in that in my own fiction, um, and I do understand the impulse for some people because I mean of course when you're talking about like black literature and blackness that becomes a bit more complicated because of course there's always the um, yeah just the mention of like people being only preoccupied with trauma and not other yeah just like not other things like joy or love etc etc um, but for me I, I feel like in my own work I like to hold them in tension and I'm not really invested in offering happy endings where I feel like they are not supposed to have it. And of course, this is like informed by like my own views of the world and also thinking about, um, and that is itself like a kind of like political mm -hmm. project or um, position rather, but- um, Like various schools of thought maybe. Yeah, but I think, yeah, but I think like even as a black writer, it's like, like even like in presenting 
I mean, not. I, I guess I can't really speak to the risk of presenting blackness as object, abject, but um, I think the need to like explain or like just considering like who your audience is, what are the ethics of the story, how are you writing about violence, um, how are you thinking about history? I mean, I think like I often like return to Toni Morrison's Beloved because like um, there's like a profound moment when um, it's like the scene um, in which um, Setha. Um, kill like kills her baby because mm-hmm. she doesn't want them to um return to slavery mm-hmm. um um as enslaved people and it's not like narrated in her perspective it's like from the pers- it's like t- that moment in particular like there's a child it's like told from the perspective of like a sl- like a slave master like the slave catcher and the mm-hmm. like refrain of that chapter is like why did she do that and it's just interesting that like what like what does it mean to talk about like violence or like the scene of violence um in fiction and like and also just like what are the responsibilities of a writer um so yeah and it, yeah and I feel like it becomes a bit more because compl- like people say like responsibilities of a writer is sometimes like I feel like reinforces the kind of like logic of like individualism or like that like this one um like one minority writer is sort of representing an entire group of people or like a culture. Yeah. Um, it's like they're but, just representing their own narrative, and but yes, at the yeah. same time, also they do have an audience. So yeah, so I, yeah, and I also think out. right, and I also think it's just important to like be aware of how um, yeah how literature as an ep- enterprise also can just like reproduce all of the shit that we we talk about like hating like capitalism mm-hmm. um individualism like and how yeah just like be, like i don't know just being like aware of that um because i mean that is sort of like and i, I think people are better about i mean i think people have always been i mean it depends on who you talk to actually um because i mean I, I i would argue i would wager that like people have always been quote unquote aware of that um but some people may not but i mean just like i mean even like when people talk about writing it's like th- this like solitary endeavor this like kind of like um curriculum like effort that like you are this one person and you are engaging in such a profound journey of like producing this book and that it's representative of all your genius and not like necessarily like like no like you have readers um you have editors you have like you like I mean not only just like the like a community of people but just like the way it's seen as like a competitive sport sometimes or that um that it is only something that and in like and indiv- like the individual does and that I don't know it's just something about it that's like the way because I mean you do like I mean you do write by yourself of course um but it's not to say that you are not engaging with other people or in a community to think about that work or like how that work is informed by others or whatever um and I think sometimes that gets lost is really what I'm trying to say um yeah but yeah, I hope that I answered the question. It's like, I'm still like embarking, like I'm a very young writer. Um, I'm in my early 20s. So it's like, I still have, like, I don't know. I just feel like my thoughts yeah. about writing just change like a lot. So yeah, but these are my Who thoughts now. You, Rashida, because you've done a lot and you are really young and there's still so much space to grow. Yeah. Thank you, Sharon. Yeah. Thank you for being willing to like learn out loud, like yes yeah to i think yeah. i feel like this podcast is just it truly <laughs> wait millions <laughs> new york to philadelphia Dang. That's our anyone who's on from 11 a.m to one or 11 p.m to 1 a.m Dang. that's exciting <laughs> but um yeah 
yeah thank, thank you for you. sharing your works in progress like th- thoughts with us yeah. yeah no worries thanks for having me this is so fun i was a little nervous i was like oh my gosh podcast <laughs> no but yeah it's just kind of like a conversation <laughs> before just besties talking theory <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah that's really it <laughs> we happen to stream it while we do it but yeah, before but we go other people can get in on this yeah <laughs> Can you actually, for our listeners, we know you, we can find your work, but can, what do you want to plug? What, where can we yeah. read your work? Where do you where want can people to you? see from you? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the best bet is to follow me on Twitter. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's at Rashida-Saka. Um, and which we can also put in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah, it's just that, and that's where... Um, I like publicize my work if it's like being published. I do have work that's coming out in tri-quarterly. Um, I don't know when this podcast will be published, but it comes out June 15th. Um, and I think there might be like a launch. So I, I'm not sure if um, it'll, come it'll out be like, possible. We'll, we'll put it out like Monday, this Monday. So yeah, it's on the 7th. Like, it'll come yeah. out the week after. Yeah, so next week. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's going to be like a launch party or anything or if I'll be reading anything, but we I'll definitely repost, like... We can repost on Mustani and be like, remember this episode? The And okay. then we can repost like if they're doing some sort of an online event. We can be like, people can yeah. watch you be celebrated. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but that's um, the most um, immediate thing that's happening in terms of like where you can find some of my work. Um, yeah, and I mean... Um, yeah, I mean, I just work as an assistant editor for a California book club. So if you want to join that, you can find some of my work there. But in terms of fiction, um, it's work in progress. Um, but yeah, yeah. So stay tuned, everybody. Follow now so you can yeah, say Follow hey. along. Get it Get it on the ground floor with this young writer and follow <laughs> her journey. Exactly. Um, right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.